Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arato samma sambuddhasa Good afternoon, friends. So I'd first like to make a clarification of something that happened on the first night of the retreat here. You all took the eight precepts, and the first one was panatipata veramani sikapadang samadhyami, refraining from killing. But you'll be interested to know that there is in fact some killing that you're allowed to do. Don't get too excited about that, let me clarify. Kodang chetva sukangseti, kodang chetva nasochati, kodhasa visamulasa maduragasa brahmana, vadhang arya pasang santi, tanhi chetva nasochati. The translation of that is Having slain anger, one sleeps soundly. Having slain anger, one does not sorrow. The killing of anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. This is the killing the noble ones praise, for having slain that, one does not sorrow. So it is these things, these things that cause us so much pain and grief, greed, hatred, delusion. It's these things that we can set out to kill in our practice. And our weapon of, we have many weapons at our disposal. We have metta, we have insight. Those are our two primary ones along with concentration. And so for this talk today, I'd like to talk about our weapon of metta by discussing what's called the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is the part, part of the sutta of what we've been chanting every day um, at lunchtime, at the guided meditations, and so on. We've been <clears throat> chanting parts of that sutta. But there's also an introduction to the sutta that goes into um, a few qualities that one who wants to develop metta, or for that matter, any kind of meditation, should have, cultivate, and develop within themselves. 
And so I'd like to go through the entirety of the sutta, if we have time, and discuss what we can discern from this sutta of not only how to prepare for the practice of metta, but the motivations for the practice of metta, as well as the actual practice itself, how we go about it as we've been going through throughout this retreat so far. So the sutta starts off karaniyam atta kusalena yantang sadang padang abhisamecha. One skilled in good, wishing to attain that state of peace, should act thus. So we're referring to that state of peace. It's not exactly said what state of peace that is, but frankly, it's an umbrella term. Any kind of real peace that one could think of, one should do these things in order to attain that, whether that be the peace that comes from the development of the divine abodes, or the peace that comes from concentration, or even in the most ultimate sense, the peace that comes from Nibbana. These qualities are universal in that regard, in that they all lead in that general direction, that direction of Nibbana. And so the first quality is called Sakka, which means able or capable. We have to be able and capable within the Dhamma, meaning that we have to know and understand the Dhamma and be capable of putting it into practice. We have to have the discernment and the wherewithal to know skillful and unskillful states, to know what is the Dhamma, what is not the Dhamma, so that we can traverse this path towards this state of peace, knowing the right directions. There are many turns, many distractions, many ways we can get caught off that path. But if we know what is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma, then we'll be able to navigate that safely and successfully. And there's one sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, it's also in the Vandana book. It's called the Gotami Sutta, the discourse to Mahapajapati Gotami, who was a relative of the Buddhas. And he says this statement in regards to the Dhamma. As for the qualities of which you, Gotami, may know, These qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to self-effacement, not to self-aggrandizement, to modesty, not to overweening ambition, to contentment, not to discontent, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to the arousal of energy, not to laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. You, Gotami, may definitely hold this is the Dhamma, This is the Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. So when we keep these qualities in mind, namely the qualities that we seek to develop in the Dhamma, modesty, contentment, things like that, when we keep these qualities of the Dhamma in mind, we know what is not Dhamma and we know what is Dhamma. Anything, any teaching that we may hear, any kind of um, thought we may have regarding the Dhamma, we can we can clarify and quantify these things in regards to these different states. And that's what makes us capable in the Dhamma, capable of dwelling independently, knowing the teaching when we see it, and following that teaching to its completion. The the second and third states go together. It's uju and suju. Uju means straight or upright. You may, if you're familiar with any kind of Buddhist chants, you may recall from the um, homage to the Sangha, Ujupati Panno Bhagavato Savaka Sangha, meaning that the disciples of the Buddha are following the straight path, the straight practice. And Suju is just Sa Uju, meaning very straight, very upright. So there's a certain degree of emphasis that's being put here. And so with regards to uju in this context, we're referring to straightness of character. And the best way to look at this is to compare it to what we think of when we think of a crooked character. That means one who is deceitful, one who is a a snake, one who subverts others to get their wishes and is otherwise not honest about their intentions. But it's much easier for us if we speak honestly and wear our intentions on our sleeve. Otherwise, we have this game of subterfuge that we'll never get caught up in, 
this idea of hiding our intentions, trying to trick and deceive others. And all this is a, it, it has its toll on the mind. We think, you know, am I going to be discovered? You know, how should I best go about this? How should I get what I want? When we have, when we act with straight and upright character, then we don't have to worry about those things because we act with a, a moral compass that we've established through practice. Instead of operating because of things we want, we operate on principles of the Dhamma instead. And that's referring specifically to the various aspects of sila, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on. All these things are what make one straight, make one one of upright character. And it's also this honesty with ourselves, not only with other people. We have to be honest about our own flaws, about our own weaknesses, about where we need work. If we try and delude ourselves saying that we don't have these problems, then how are we going to confront them? That's not going to be possible. And we're just going to wrap ourselves up in egotistical thinkings of our own perfection, a perfection that isn't there yet, that we only have to develop and work on. Excuse me. Then the fourth characteristic is called suvacha, which means obedient or easy to admonish. <clears throat> and we don't, I don't mean obedient here like obedient like a dog, but rather obedience in terms of following the Dhamma, being obedient to the teachings of the Buddha, following those with sincerity. And there's also this aspect of being easy to admonish, meaning easy to criticize, that other people whom you respect can easily go to you and openly and frankly discuss with you personal shortcomings. This is, again, is extraordinarily important and is one of the most important aspects of what we call noble friendship or one who is a kalyana mitta, a spiritual friend or a noble friend. The noble friend is not this sycophant who goes and tells you you're perfect, you have no flaws and worships the ground you walk on. In fact, I wouldn't call that a friend at all. A friend is someone who is, who is willing to be real with you, willing to say that, you know, this, this conduct that you're doing is not skillful. You should consider the ramifications of it. Look into your mind states when you're doing it. And also they tell you about how you can improve. And likewise, you feel comfortable enough with them that you can tell the same thing to them. That's real friendship in accord with the Dhamma not the buddies you go to the pub with, not the people who suck up to you to try and get things out of you. That's not real friendship. The real friendship, again, is, is this characteristic of realness, being open, being comfortable in this regards. There's a wonderful sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. It's called the Anumana Sutta, the 15th sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. And in this sutta, Mahamogalana, who is one of the chief disciples of the Buddha, gives a list of 16 qualities that make one difficult to admonish, difficult to criticize. I won't go too far into detail into them because we already have a list of 16 we're going into, so having a sub-list of 16 will be here for another few hours or so. So we'll go into this briefly. He says that the, the qualities that make one hard to admonish and the opposites make one easy to admonish are thus. One is dominated by evil wishes. What we mean by that is that one who has evil wishes has these desires, they desire the wrong thing from the Dhamma. They desire to gain fame from the Dhamma. They desire to gain praise from the Dhamma. They desire to gain uh, material gains from the Dhamma, you know, make teaching careers out of it or become very well-known meditation teachers, something like that. Such a thing is not, is a, a possible um, outcome, but it shouldn't be the goal because the goal of the Dhamma must always be, as we said in the Gotami Sutta, these ideas of leading towards contentment and peace and dispassion. And so if one operates with these kinds of worldly wishes in the Dhamma, then criticism is not, they're not going to take criticism very kindly because it's, they'll take it as an attack on their position, an attack on their praise. There are these, these eight things called the loka dhammas, the worldly things or the worldly vicissitudes. Those are gain and pain, I mean, I'm sorry, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, 
praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. And the Buddha says that the world revolves around these things, and the world and the uh, these things revolve around the world, meaning that all the doings and goings on of the world are inextricably tied up with these things. But he also says that we must not be enchanted by these things because they're impermanent. Whenever we, so long as there is gain, we shall always lose. So long as there is praise, we'll always find ourselves blamed at one point or another. So long as there is gain or a pleasure, there will always be pain as well. There is this duality, this dichotomy that's always present. And so having our wishes involved in these things is not proper for us trying to cultivate metta. We have to cultivate metta without expectations, without desiring praise from other people, but doing it because we've seen the virtues and benefits of doing that practice in and of itself. And then the second one was one who lauds himself and disparages others makes himself difficult to admonish. And this is, this is pretty reasonable. If you know someone who is you know, up on their high horse all the time and says, I am the so-and-so, I know all these things, uh, you don't know these things, other people don't know these things, then, well, why would people go and admonish that person? Because they already assume that person's not going to listen. People don't admonish people who they don't think are going to listen. They don't waste their breath on that. So we want to try and make ourselves not like that. We don't want to, you know, laud ourselves out of conceit and arrogance and disparage others um, in such an unskillful way. If there's any, again, there's this difference between disparagement and criticism. It can sometimes be a very fine line to tread. Then <clears throat> the next three factors from this Anumana Sutta are related. One is overcome by anger. One is resentful and one is stubborn. And so we can see that the practice of metta makes one easy to admonish, and making oneself easy to admonish improves the practice of metta. These things work together in both directions like that. Because again, if someone's angry, then, well, if we want to admonish them and criticize them about something they've done, we're not going to do that if we know that they're prone to anger, because we know they're going to blow a gasket when we say what we need to say. They don't want to listen to what we have to say. They're just going to get angry and defensive about it. And so we don't want to have, emulate that in ourselves. We want to be um, you know, full of goodwill, full of compassion, so that we can open ourselves up to other people in this, in this real and meaningful way. And then um, <clears throat> related to that also is speaks harshly. So again, this is all very tied up with anger. People who aren't angry don't speak harshly. One requires the other. People who are not angry, they, well, don't speak harshly. They don't have any reason to. They're not overcome by these hatreds that cause people to speak in such ways. And hence the same thing. The next few are also closely related. One can resist the one who approves them, meaning they can say, oh, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm perfect. I don't have any problems. Or they can go on to denigrate that reprover, saying that, I don't have a problem. You have a problem. They don't listen to that criticism like that. You see this very often in toxic relationships. You know, a fight comes up or a problem comes up and uh, suddenly all the old cards are on the table. That thing you did five years ago is suddenly fair play. Everyone takes out all their weapons from underneath their uh, little um, the dressers all those things we did wrong in the past, and we throw those same things back right at them if we're, you know, not, um, we haven't developed metta in a proper way. If we have developed metta in a proper way, we know, we know well to stop that cycle before it starts. There's one sutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya where um, <clears throat> a certain Brahmin comes to the Buddha and scolds, reviles, and speaks harshly to him. Uh, it doesn't say the reasons why, but you can fill in the blanks as you wish for that. And so the Buddha asks the Brahmin, uh, what do you think? If someone offers you a gift, do you have to accept it or can you reject it? And the Brahmin says, well, you don't have to accept it. You can reject it. You can do that. And the Buddha says, so too, Brahmin, I reject this gift you offer me. 
this gift of anger, this gift of harsh words. And hence, it's still yours. You keep your gift. Your anger is yours. It's not mine. And this is a very important point. When we're contacted with unpleasant and disagreeable courses of speech, whether it be harsh, false, untimely, what have you, it's, it's imperative that we not continue the cycle of unskillful action. A person comes to us and speaks unskillfully. As practitioners of the Dhamma, it's not fitting for us to also respond unskillfully. That's just creating this whirlpool of unskillful. And what happens when, this hap- when that happens is that both parties are just dragged down to the bottom of that unskillful whirlpool, and there's sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, all these things. So when we're contacted with these kinds of courses of speech, it's imperative that we respond to unskillfulness in a skillful manner, meaning responding with goodwill, responding with compassion, responding with sympathetic joy, responding with equanimity. This cuts the cycle off before it can continue, before it can propagate, before it can proliferate. And you'll even find in a more practical sense, not only does one protect one's um, state of mind when one does this, but also one will find that it may stop the argument right there. A lot of times these kinds of conflicts are only driven forward by a continued back and forth. And so if one party decides not to play that game anymore, well, the other person will, well, maybe they'll get bored, maybe they'll um, you know, see that you're not being affected by it and go on their merry way. All these kinds of things can happen. But suffice to say, whatever happens, it'll be a bet for the outcome of the better. <clears throat> Another thing that makes one difficult to admonish is that one evades the reprover. You know, someone can come to us and make a critique out of, you know, obviously all these critiques have to be from a good place. If someone's just bullying you, that's not the same thing as what we're talking about here. It has to be someone who genuinely wants to see you, uh, you know, improve your character in some way for the benefit of yourself and others. And so when people come to us like this, we really need to listen earnestly Whatever the, whoever the person may be, and especially if the person is a noble friend of ours. <clears throat> it's not fitting for us to try and evade reproving, you know, by changing the subject or by denying anything. These kinds of things don't come out of vacuums. People don't, you know, offer, they don't go out of their way. They don't put their heart on their sleeve to say things about us without a reason, without a cause. And so even within that end of itself, we can see that this is something that we should consider seriously. What is, what is being told to me? What is this thing that's being pointed out? What is this possible flaw in my character so that I can investigate that and work on it so that I can attain benefit and happiness for a long time and progress in this Dhamma and discipline? And similar to that also, one fails to account for their conduct. That's um, saying the, pretty much the same thing, that one denies any wrongdoing, or I should say any possibility of wrongdoing. <clears throat> can, there, there cannot, what also makes one difficult to admonish is um, enviousness. One is, if one is envious of the one who's criticizing them, there will be this... Um, um, you know, this idea of, you know, this person's just trying to bring me down because they want to, I don't know, usurp my position. It's a, it's a power play or something like that. And whether it is or not is irrelevant, but we should nevertheless always be thankful when someone tries to genuinely point out a, something we need to work on. These, these things, it can be so hard sometimes to see these shortcomings within ourselves because we're all wrapped up in our own sense of self, our own sense of being, our own conceits, and so on. That having an outside perspective on things can be extraordinarily helpful and quite illuminating. And so we should always try and be open to these things and consider them seriously. What also makes one hard to admonish is when one is obstinate and arrogant. Again, if we have you know this huffed up sense of self, this high conceit, then any time someone comes to us with a critique, 
We're just going to, in a way, retreat back into our conceits. You'll often find that very conceited people can sometimes not be very angry. And the reason for this is because they retreat back into their egos, saying that, oh, I am a great person. Who is this to say this to me? I don't need them. And it's just a, it's a fake kind of non-anger in a way of speaking. It's a non-anger wrapped up in delusion. And we want to avoid that. This Dhamma, as the Gautama Zutta said, is for, self is a, for self-effacement, meaning that we remove our conceits, whether it be high conceits or low conceits and so on and so forth. We don't want to get our ego caught up in these things, but only deal in skillful and unskillful states. Whenever we throw the ideas of self into the equation, we're setting up the, the conditions for suffering, the conditions for ignorance. We have to just analyze things in the subjective way as states, skillful, unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome. And finally, one adheres strongly to their own views without easily relinquishing them in the face of good or contrary evidence. We really love to believe what we believe because, again, it's caught up in our sense of self. I am one who believes in this. This is my view, and I hold to that view. We, we aggrandize ourselves through these kinds of ruminations. But... We have to acknowledge that so long as we are not enlightened, there's a possibility that we're wrong, that our interpretations of the Dhamma might be wrong, that our conduct might be wrong, that our ideas might be wrong, however much we hate to admit that to ourselves. It's only when there's knowledge and vision that arises with the entry to the stream, the entry into the Dhamma, that we can say conclusively that we know the Dhamma. Until that time, everything is mere speculation to some degree or another. And so when people come to us, we have to be willing to listen to their arguments, listen to their position, and be willing, if the evidence says otherwise, otherwise to our view, to relinquish that view. <clears throat> because we don't get anywhere by clinging to our views, especially if they're wrong views. Clinging to wrong view is, in fact, the, the root of suffering. We call it ignorance. We call it delusion. Being established in right view is the, the first step of this Noble Eightfold Path. Without right view, we don't have the, the impetus or the momentum to move forward on the path. And so those who would try and establish us in right view are very helpful and beneficial to us. And now obviously with all of these different things, obviously the critiquer can also be wrong. That's possible too, that they you know, don't know the whole story that they themselves may not be the best person to judge these things. And that's perfectly acceptable. But what we have to do at the very least is take these things seriously, really honestly and sincerely address them within ourselves. Look within ourselves and analyze and say, is this state within me? Is this view I have reasonable? Is it correct? We have to look into these things with wisdom and not hold on to things just out of liking and disliking, and so on and so forth. The next factor is mudu, which means soft, mild, or gentle. <clears throat> in another discourse in the Sangyutta Nikaya, there's a, another Brahmin comes to the Buddha, and he once again reviles, scolds, etc., to the Buddha. And the Buddha says nothing. He just uh, sits there, continues his meditation. And the Brahmin, all haughty, says, Oh, look, I've defeated you. You don't even know what to say to me. That's how pathetic you are. Things like that. And then the Buddha, being a sharp witticist in his own right, responded like this. Jayang ve manyati balo valchaya parusang bhanang jayan che vasatanghoti ya tittika vijanato. Which means... The fool thinks victory is won when, by speech, he bellows harshly. But for one who understands, patient endurance is the true victory. And so, again, we mentioned that when we respond to unskillful speech with unskillful speech, we're accepting the other person's gift of anger. We're allowing anger to come into ourselves. And that's not fitting of us who are trying to practice this Dhamma. And so... 
Patiently enduring any kind of speech that comes our way is the real practice of the Dhamma. And this doesn't mean, of course, bending over backwards and being a doormat. You know, the Dhamma has the openings to, you know, defend oneself and to address claims that are made against oneself. But the key is that these things have to be done optimally without anger, but instead out of compassion for the other person. So even in this example, the Buddha said this because he wanted this Brahmin to see that his, his speaking harshly in this way wasn't the victory that he thought he had. And it turns out, in fact, that Brahmin eventually ordained and became an arahant because of this interaction where he was so impressed by the Buddha. And so when we, when we have the quality of muddu, this softness, mildness, or gentleness, we don't respond to um, harshness with more harshness. We instead respond to harshness with metta. Responding with metta can never go wrong. It's always the skillful response to things. <clears throat> the um, sixth characteristic is called anatimani, which means not conceited. Because how is it possible that we could develop, well, develop goodwill towards other beings if we're completely obsessed with ourselves, if we're highly conceited? The only person we'll be able to develop metaphor is ourselves because we're so obsessed with ourselves and we can't see the perspectives of other people. Of course, we're all conceited to one degree or another, so long as we're not enlightened. But the key thing here is that we have to acknowledge that conceit when it arises. We have to recognize it. Recognize these thoughts of comparison, measurement. I'm better than him, I'm worse than her, I'm equal to him, and so on. Acknowledge those things when they come up and see that they are only leading to more and more suffering, that they don't lead to anywhere skillful, that they don't lead to our peace and contentment, nor to the peace and contentment of others. The seventh factor is called santusaka, which means contented. Again, if we are uncontented, meaning we're looking for more and more things to try and fulfill us, we're not going to be practicing metta. We're going to be looking for things in the world to satisfy us, namely sensual pleasures, material items. This is particularly um, emphasized for monastics who are uh, instructed to be contented with whatever robes they have, whatever food they receive, whatever shelter they have, whatever medicines they receive. But the same thing can go for any person. Being contented with whatever things are the absolute necessities and not hankering over those things that are non-essential for continued living, so that one can instead focus their mental energies not on searching for various shiny baubles of the world, but instead developing one's mind, developing thoughts of metta, compassion, and so on. <clears throat> the eighth factor is closely related to this, is called subharo, meaning easily supported, or lightly loaded. When we are contented, we become easy to support because we don't, aren't demanding. We don't make high, lofty demands from other people. It would be like you know, the monks asking the, the very kind lay people for um, you know, fancy watches and fancy cars. No, we, we don't do that. In fact, a lot of times people ask us if we'd like anything and we have a hard time even answering because well, we have a lot of this stuff already, and how much stuff do you really need? We need a few robes, um, we have the cooties all built, that's all set. Medicine's fairly common, and well, people bring food already. So beyond that, most of what we ask for is realistically a bunch of books. Hence why you see the library as such an extensive collection. People want to give us things, and we say, oh, this book could be fine. There's not much else that we could really say. And so we don't want to... We, want to be, we don't want to be a burden on other people as much as possible, meaning that <coughs> we don't want to overextend their friendliness. You know, people make all these offers of kindness and generosity, and it's disrespectful to them to exceed um, standard expectations of that or mooch off them, as it were. We have to, especially monks, again, we have to really strive to be as easy to support as possible. And this goes into many different facets. For example, having healthy lifestyles so that people don't have to pay as many medical bills for us. You know, avoiding things like um, lifestyle diseases, like um, obesity, for example. 
if we do if we're um, if we do that, then suddenly there's all these extra medical costs that venerable supporters have to give us, and so that makes us not so easy to support. This is but one example. Next one is called appakicca, having few duties. Again, one needs to have, well, the time to do the practice. If one is utterly busy one, and one finds they don't have time to sit and cultivate these states, then it's going to be very difficult for them to progress on this path. There has to be at least some degree of free time. And this doesn't mean, of course, doing nothing all day whatsoever. In one sutta of the Nikaya, the Kosambhya Sutta, the Buddha is referring to some of the qualities that make one a stream enter. And one is that despite however many duties that person may have, they keep their mind always focused on mental development, <coughs> on training in the Dhamma. All the while they do their duties so that when they finally have time off from their duties, they're ready and focused to do what needs to be done in this practice. So at the very least, what we have to do with regards to apakicca <clears throat> is keep our minds on the Dhamma, keep our minds on the practice, knowing that this practice is more important than those other worldly things that we can easily get caught up in because it's the one that leads to our real lasting peace and happiness that all those other things of the world cannot do. They can only give us temporary, fleeting peace and happiness. The tenth factor is related to that as well. Sallahukavutti, living lightly. Again, this is referring to a lot of what was said with Subaru, meaning that one doesn't have a lot of things weighing them down, specifically a lot of material possessions. The more material possessions we have, the more suffering we have because we have to defend those things, we have to repair those things, we, we want to f buy the newest of those things. For example, you know, um, <clears throat> let's say you have a little flip phone, like one of those ones from the 2000s, and suddenly this new uh, smartphones come out. And you think, oh, well, I'm okay with my flip phone, I don't need that, I'm okay. But then you try your friend's smartphone, and suddenly you say, oh, I really need that smartphone now. I need the iPhone, uh, whatever they're up to these days. I don't know what they're up to. Eight, nine, something. Seven, okay. Whatever. <laughs> the 11th factor is nipaka, meaning wise or skilled. This is pointing to, pointing to another very important aspect of the practice. That in order to wish other beings be well, happy, and peaceful, we need to have some inkling of what that means. What does it mean to be well, happy, and peaceful? And I mean that in the most ultimate sense, within the perspective of the Dhamma. I can wish that you all have lifetime supplies of ice cream. That can be my metta practice, but that's the wrong way of doing that, because ice cream is impermanent and will not satisfy you. I regret to inform you. <laughs> but when we're wise in the Dhamma, we know that what is the best for a being is to relinquish craving, to relinquish attachment, to <clears throat> develop peace within in themselves, to develop contentment within themselves. And so this is the wish that we can spread. May all beings be well, happy, and peaceful by realizing and practicing this Dhamma for themselves, for, by removing their craving, by understanding impermanence. This is the, the true, the ultimate way that beings experience wellness, contentedness, happiness, and peace. But if we don't have any inkling of that for ourselves, it'll be difficult to give these thoughts of metta because we won't know what is meant by metta. We need to have the, the operational definitions underlying this wish really put in order in order for us to do this practice. The twelfth factor is santindrio, meaning peaceful faculties or well-developed faculties. What this specifically refers to is one practices what we call restraint of the faculties, meaning that, for example, when one sees a form with the eye, they don't get caught up in the signs and features of that object, the various um, specifics of the object but rather they take a step back from the sense experience and see that there is a, 
an experience of seeing that has arisen dependent on the contact of three things, the I, the form, and I consciousness. The meaning of those three things is contact, from contact arises feeling, and so on. Seeing things in this way so that we don't get caught up in attraction and repulsion to the objects of our sense experience, but instead analyze the process of sense experience itself with wisdom. By doing this, by restraining our senses in this way, we avoid getting caught up in craving and aversion, but instead look on with mindfulness as we see these things arise and cease depending on requisite conditions. The 13th factor is apagambo, modest and not impudent, not rude or boisterous. This is very closely related to anatimani, not conceited. Again, not having this idea of always you know, speaking highly of ourselves, trying to prove things to other people, saying, I am the best, I have these qualities, look at all my great qualities, that kind of thing. Because speaking about great quali- one's own qualities is a futile effort, because talk is cheap. Anyone can say that they're a good person. Anyone can say that anyone can toot their own horn. But it's much harder, much more difficult to act as one speaks, to act as one says they are. And that's the true measure of wisdom, if one practices what they preach in a manner of speaking. So we, don't, we want to avoid these things, these kinds of speech, because all it does is um, add to our conceits, not removing those said conceits. Fourteenth is kulesu ananugiddo, not desiring after families or not attached to families. This one is uh, perhaps a little more specific for monastics in that, you know, we have families who come and support us. And the Buddha instructs monks not to get attached to those families, not to, you know, become overly close with them, you know, being one of the family in a way of speaking. Because, you know, as monks, we, we, um, <coughs> we um, what's the word, renounce fam- familial, familial life. We renounce these kinds of relationships for the benefit of ourselves, so that we don't become attached, so that we can instead remove those attachments. But even for a lay practitioner, one should, you know, again, just practice this idea of not being attached to people, because inevitably people may change, people may go away, people may get sick and die. And so it's not good for us to become emotionally attached to people's states of being, because that sets us up for disappointment sets us up for suffering. And then the final factor is summed up, one should not do any slight wrong which the wise might censure. <coughs> and so finally we have the umbrella term saying that that which the wise might censure should not be done, and that is including all of the previous factors we discussed. One has this um, sense of moral shame in that they really try very earnestly and sincerely to purify their conduct, to purify their sila, having fear of the slightest wrong, avoiding the slightest wrong in their conduct. This is an attitude we can have towards our, our conduct that sets us in the right direction. <clears throat> because in this Dhamma, we're looking to purify our minds and that means every single little impurity has to be removed. And the first step in doing that is changing one's sila, putting one's moral conduct in the forefront, making sure that's up to par. <clears throat> and so those are the 16, the 16 factors that went way over the time I was expecting to go over them, but that's okay. So then <clears throat> the, um, the sutta goes on. Sukino va kemino hontu sabbe satta bhavantu sukitatta. Now we're starting to get into the part we recite. May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings have happy minds. Ye ke chipana bhutati tasava tavarava anavasesa dhigava ye mahantava manjima rasaka anukatula dittava yeva aditta ye chadure vasanti avidure. <clears throat> 
Whatever living beings there may be, without exception, weak or strong, long, large, medium, short, subtle or gross, visible or invisible, living near or far, born or coming to birth, may all beings have happy minds. So this is pointing to the fact that we have to give metta without discrimination, whether it be to beings who are born or not born, near or far, whether we consider them friends or enemies, all beings, whatever their status, we have to give goodwill towards them undiscriminately and equally. And we'll get into some of the reasons why this is, especially with regards to hostile persons a bit later in this sutta. <clears throat> the next verse goes, parang nikubbeta nati manyeta kattachinang kanchi bhyaro sana patigasanya na anyamanyasa dukkamitcheya. Let no one deceive another, nor despise anyone anywhere. Neither from anger nor ill will should anyone wish harm to another. It's important when we do the metta practice <coughs> to have the motivations, the reasons for the practice behind us. Otherwise, we'll have trouble putting the energy and effort required into that practice into play. And so there are a few very good reasons to cultivate metta. The first one that the Buddha goes into is um, well exemplified in a story that's in the Sangyutnidakaya again. It's dealing with a king called Pasanadi and his queen named Mallika. So King Pasanadi goes up to the upper terrace of his palace to uh, meet with his queen Mallika and he asks Mallika, who is it that you love the most in the world? And you know, he's expecting the mushy-gushy response, oh, I love you the most in the world, that kind of thing. <clears throat> but Malika is a very wise person, and she answered very honestly and sincerely. She said, I love myself the most, more than anyone in the world. And the king considers this, and he says, oh, you know what? I love myself the most in the world too. That's true. And so then he leaves the palace and goes to visit the Buddha. And he relays this story to the Buddha. And in response, the Buddha says this, Sabba disa anuparigamma chetasa ne vandhaga piyataramattana kvachi evang piyoputu atta paresang tasma nahingse paramattakamo. Having traversed all directions with the mind, one finds none anywhere dearer than oneself. Likewise, each person holds himself most dear. Hence, one who loves himself should not harm others. And we see this is, this is wisdom that's found in many religious traditions, which is one of the interesting things about the metta practice, that, we, the, that Buddha didn't have a monopoly on this, that in fact many religions speak on such things. <clears throat> you know, it's this idea of do unto others as you would do unto yourself. And that's a very powerful reflection that we can use as we go about our practice and about our days, asking ourselves, would I want what I want about to do done to me? Would I want to yell at my, would I want someone to yell at me if I want to yell at someone? Would I want someone to speak harshly to me if I'm going to speak harshly to someone? And so these reflections can really quickly put a stop to these angry thoughts saying that, you know, this is not good for me. This is not good for them. This is not good for anyone. In fact, in another sutta, the Buddha says that one who wants to treat oneself as an, or um, I'm sorry, <clears throat> one who wants what a foe wants for them is one who is angry, i.e. that if we harbor anger within ourselves, we do what a foe would want to have done to us. We're harming ourselves as a foe would like to do. And this points to an important purpose of metta practice as well, that anger is poison. We saw in the very beginning of this talk that the Buddha described anger as with a poisoned root and honeyed tip, meaning that we can have this righteous kind of anger, this anger that's almost gratifying in this kind of way, saying that, you know, it's something bound up in conceit. 
I'm right, they're wrong, I'll show them who's boss, don't mess with me, these kinds of feelings that are connected with conceit. And so there's this tip of honey on this blade of poison, as it were, because really, the, all the anger does is harm ourselves, much less other people, especially if we don't act out on that anger. All we do when we harbor anger within ourselves is cause ourselves to be extra miserable. Our anger doesn't harm other people, and that's certainly a good thing, but it just makes ourselves miserable too. And so in that way, anger is not pragmatic for our peace and happiness. It's counterproductive to that state, counterproductive to that goal. <clears throat> and this leads to the point also that removing anger is beneficial to ourselves and others. It helps us, it helps other people. Because when we interact with people with a mind of goodwill, with a mind of compassion, then we're more likely to have good, meaningful relationships with people, as we mentioned with regards to being easy to admonish. Otherwise, we find ourselves with a poor reputation and no friends when we give in to anger often. But instead, we can cultivate these healthy relationships with people, not just when we're face-to-face -face with them, but in our mind, in this metta practice as well. And from that practice, as I hope some of you have begun to see, there arises a great deal of joy, a great deal of lightness of the mind, a great deal of happiness. And this is a, a happiness that is very wholesome. It's not connected to sensual pleasures. It's not connected to the worldly doings that we're typically involved in. But in, in a way, it's beyond that. And so in that regard, it's conducive to our practice because the Buddha says that when the mind is happy, then it becomes concentrated. It's easy to have our minds be focused, one-pointed, unified, and concentrated when there's tranquility and happiness in the mind. And the practice of metta is extremely um, potent in bringing about that state of mind so that we can continue on the path of practice, looking at things with wisdom. <clears throat> so these are all very strong, powerful reasons to do this practice. And in the next verse, I'll explain why these are so important. The next one is Matayata Niyang Puttang Ayusa Eka Puttamanurake Evampisabhutesu Manasang Bhavaye Aparimanang. As a mother would risk her own life to protect her only child, even so towards all living beings, one should cultivate a boundless heart. So first and foremost, there has to be a clarification of this first two sets of sentences, as a mother would risk her own life to protect her only child. This doesn't mean we should be attached to beings, as we could expect a mother to be to her child, so that when the child doesn't succeed or is hurt, the mother or the father even gets upset and worried and anxious and is uh, sorrowful. That's not what we're looking for here. When we practice metta, we have to have this equanimous feeling towards all beings. Because when it comes down to it, happiness, wellness, and contentedness are the choice of the individual being. There's some degree of external things that can help with this, having access to food and shelter and not being abused and such things. But when, <clears throat> in the most ultimate sense, what we find in this practice is that all of our sufferings are made by this very mind itself and the workings of the mind within the context of craving and aversion. And so when we wish for all beings to be well, happy, and peaceful, we can't do so very much to make them that way outside of things like supporting them and giving, giving and such practices. But in the most ultimate sense, their wellness and happiness comes from their own wisdom a wisdom that they themselves have to cultivate, that we can't cultivate for them. And so it's not proper for us when we're practicing metta to become upset and depressed when other beings suffer. Instead, there has to be this um, attitude of equanimity. This is different from apathy, not caring about the welfare of other beings, but it's the realization that no matter how much we may wish for beings to be well, happy, and peaceful, they may not want to be. They may not have the wisdom to do so. And the best that we can do is hope that they you know, see the Dhamma, that they practice the Dhamma in such a way that they'll find this true contentment and peace. What, this, what these verses are instead referring to is energy, 
Just as a mother would risk her own life to protect her only child, you can think of the energy of how precious the child is to that, the mother or the father. When we practice metta, we don't want to have this, you know, wet noodle, limp, panky-panky metta, this idea of may all beings be well, happy and peaceful, blah, 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 whatever. No, there has to be weight behind these words. There has to be zeal behind our metta practice, just as a mother would risk her own life to protect her only child. <clears throat> and the way to put weight behind our intentions of metta is by understanding the benefits of metta, as I discussed with the previous stanza. If you ever feel you know, lazy or discouraged in this practice, then reflect on those things. Reflect on the benefits of metta, the benefits toward yourself, the benefits towards others, how it's pleasant abiding here and now, how it improves your relationship with other beings, how, it's, how it leads us further on the path. When we reflect on these things and reflect on the reasons why beings should be well, happy, and peaceful, then zeal arises in our practice. The word for this is chanda. Um, this is referring in this context exclusively to this wholesome zeal, this wholesome effort and energy behind this practice, behind this intention. And without that, our metta practice is going to go nowhere very quickly. There has to be this strong intention behind this development, this strong intention. May all beings be well, happy, and peaceful. May they be free from suffering, and so on and so forth. We're running a little low on time, so I'll quickly speed through the last stanzas. One should cultivate for all the world a heart of boundless loving friendliness, above, below, and all around, unobstructed, without hatred or resentment. So we see here again references to this directional idea of metta in all the various directions, up, down, all around, in the various quarters. <clears throat> And what we also see is this idea of boundless loving friendliness, boundless metta. This idea that, you know, when we practice metta, sometimes it could be even used to kind of visualize it, visualize ourselves sending metta in directions. A simile that the Buddha uses is like a trumpeteer or someone who plays a horn who wants to have their horn be um, heard from a far distance. They have to put a lot of air through the horn so that, it, so that it, um, it plays loudly. And so too, when we extend metta towards all beings, there really has to be this, again, forcefulness, this idea of bringing the thoughts of metta really into the world. I don't mean that in like a physical sense, but more figuratively. This idea that almost one could like visualize, you know, playing the horn of metta in all the various different directions and really applying this effort to get that message heard as far and widely as possible. This, even, so, even this kind of idea helps us to put the zeal behind our practice, to put the effort behind our practice. And this is a boundless kind of metta, again, not distinguishing based on the character of the people, the character of the beings, what have you but going throughout the, the universe limitlessly, without bound, abundant and exalted, without hatred or ill will behind it. The will that is good instead of will that is ill, as Bhanteji so often likes to refer to it as. So coming to the last two verses, Tittang charang nisin nova, sayano vayava tassa vigatamiddo, etang sating aditteya, whether standing, walking, or sitting, lying down, or whenever awake, one should develop this mindfulness. This is called divinely dwelling here. <clears throat> so we, can see, we see also that the metta practice is not constra constrained to just sitting practice, but we can always have this attitude of metta, whatever we're doing, whatever posture we're in, because... This <clears throat> idea of metta is called samasankapa, right intention or right thought, which is the second factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And that's something that's always, that should always be in play, no matter what we're doing. 
these ideas of the intentions of renunciation, the intentions of non-cruelty, the intentions of non-harming. When we dwell on these attitudes often and throughout our waking experience, then it's more likely that we'll respond in such ways as opposed to our habitual responses of defensiveness and anger and cruelty and so on. We have these habits that we've cultivated for a very long time. And breaking them requires us to be very mindful, to be always alert, always watching our mind to make sure that anger is not arising. And when anger does arise, removing it with the proper remedies, i.e. the practice of metta. So this is in this way called a mindfulness. Mindfulness can refer to this idea of bringing to mind, of remembering. We remember to have this attitude of metta. We remember to bring thoughts of kindness to our minds. So because when we, when we find ourselves heedless, it's almost as if we forget. We forget, oh yeah, I was doing that metta thing and before I yelled at that person or punched them in the face or whatever I was doing, we forgot about our metta practice. It just flew out the window. So the more strongly we remember this, the more strongly we keep it in mind, the less likely that's going to happen. This is called divinely dwelling here. Literally dwelling like Brahma, which is one of the um, very lofty states of existence, but again, still impermanent, hence not the goal of Buddhism. But we could say that this is really a very peaceful way to live one's life. It's a way that is so contrary to the typical way of living. Where we have these ideas of you know, standing up for ourselves. And, well, maybe that's not the right thing to say. We can stand up for ourselves, but not with anger, of getting angry at various things in the world. This is you know, the way of the world. You look at the, um, you know, the election cycle and things like that. There's just anger being thrown every rich direction, anger about this person did that, that person did that, that policy is this, this policy is that, and so on and so forth. Don't ask me any questions about that at the Q&A, by the way. I'm not going to answer them. I'm <laughs> not going to touch that. So then the last verse is, Dittincha anupagamma silava dasanena sampano kamme suvenaya gedhang nahijato gabba seyang punare titi. Not falling into erroneous views, but virtuous and endowed with vision, removing desire for sensual pleasures, one comes never again to birth in the womb. So in this last stanza, the Buddha is kind of extending and extrapolating this talk on metta towards other aspects of the path, in that when we cultivate metta, when we have a mind of compassion, we're practicing in such a way to remove wrong views, because we can use these attitudes of metta as a basis for the development of right view, the development of insight, the development of wisdom. Hence why it says one is who practices metta can be virtuous and endowed with vision, endowed with knowledge of the Dhamma, knowledge of the Four Noble Truths, knowledge of the Three Marks of Existence. Removing desire for sensual pleasures. As I mentioned before, the pleasure that we derive can derive from metta practice. You'll find that it far surpasses any kind of gratification we can find from anything in the sensual field. And this is why the Buddha so highly recommends practices such as metta and jhana and things related to that. Because the joy and pleasure that arise from these things is not connected to unwholesome things. It's not connected to sensual pleasures. You even see in the first jhana, for example, one is secluded from unwholesome states, i.e. the hindrances of mind, secluded from sensual pleasures. There's a joy that's apart from these things. And if there weren't a joy that were apart from these things, there would be no possibility of nibbana. But instead, when we practice these things, we find that there's a joy that springs from the mind itself, independent of the external world. And this is a joy that's more stable, a joy that's connected with what is wholesome, a joy that leads us down in the right direction towards the ultimate joy, the ultimate joy of nibbana. And... One comes never again to birth in the womb. The definition of one who is a non-returner is one who has removed sensual desire for sensual pleasures, and hence they do not return to a womb like that. 
And so that's what we can expect if we really cultivate and perfect this practice of metta supported by, with wit, that supports wisdom, either non-return or becoming an arhant ourselves, if we really put our effort behind this practice, if we really <clears throat> put in the dedication and really strive on diligently, earnestly to cultivate these sublime attitudes. And so with that, may you all continue to practice metta and all the other divine abodes very strongly throughout the remainder of this retreat. And I wish you the best of success in this, and may you all attain the liberation of mind through loving friendliness and eventually nibbana. So you can go ahead and take a short break and um, feel free to submit any questions in the box in the Sangha Hall. I'll try my best to answer those tonight at 7 o'clock.